What are your favorite holiday traditions? For our family, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving has become charcuterie and movie night. This year we got smart though, vetting and picking the movie well in advance. Otherwise, we would spend half the evening debating which movie to watch. Anyone else have a family like that? On Friday, we decorate the house, putting up the tree, hanging our favorite ornaments like this one that I got from Kira Dunkerley in our preschool. She gave it to me to celebrate our Improve Your Serves sermon series and to recycle a tennis ball. Thank you to all who've turned in your serve cards for 2024. I love seeing our eighth graders in confirmation serving all around the church. On Friday night, we then try to agree on a holiday movie to watch. And after much discussion and some disagreement, we settled on Miracle on 34th Street this year. You may remember that Santa ends up at Macy's and to the chagrin of management, starts recommending to the parents that they should shop at other stores besides Macy's if Macy's didn't carry the item that their child wanted. Rather than pushing customers away, this generous act of honesty miraculously brings even more happy customers to Macy's in a beautiful reversal. One of my favorite traditions here at Dunwoody is the wing and a prayer Sunday school class ornament swap. Our first year here in the midst of the pandemic, my wife Elizabeth and I showed up naively with two really basic ornaments taken from our tree, but we at least wrapped them nicely for this exchange. You know the drill, each person gets a number. The person with number one picks an ornament to open and the next person can either open another ornament or steal the first one. But the key aspect of all this is after it's been stolen three times, it's frozen. You learn a lot about people in situations like that, don't you? It is a study in human nature. Normally meek and mild folks will surprise you. Husband and wife teams collude to make sure that they go home with the coveted ornaments. These wing and a prayer people go all out. There were some really fantastic ornaments and just at the last minute, one ornament I particularly wanted was stolen from me. I mean, taken from me with great care and compassion. I was disappointed, but that's the way this game is played. Someone whispered, if you don't like the ornament you end up with, just hide it on the back of the host tree before you leave. We do that every year. This class is seriously fun about their ornament exchange. In today's scripture, it's all about God's great gift exchange. As Isaiah shares a vision of what the world will look like when the Messiah comes, God exchanges our brokenness for God's healing, our mourning for God's comfort. God will exchange our imprisonment for freedom. This prophetic vision was meant to bring hope to a people whose lives have been turned upside down in exile, living far from home. God exchanges the bad news of today with the good news of eternity. As we hear the good news from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, the first three verses. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. This is the good news according to Isaiah. Let us pray. 
Gracious God, may we see your hope springing forth even in the most difficult of circumstance. In your name we pray. Amen. During the holiday season, where can you find hope? There's a hope in Alaska, one in Arizona, and another in Arkansas, but there's no hope in Alabama. Idaho, Illinois, and Indiana have a hope. In fact, 18 states have a hope, but not Georgia. Now we do have a good hope over near Athens and a new hope and even a place north of Statesboro called Hope You Like It, named for a dance hall that was once there. I think there's a road leading out of there called How'd You Like It? Isaiah says that we will find hope in the divine reversal, in the God who will turn things right side up again after trauma and upheaval have turned things upside down. When my mom and dad were just starting out together, they didn't have two nickels to rub together, but they wanted to share gifts with family and friends. And my dad went down to the local foundry and gathered a bunch of discarded metal discs that were shiny copper on one side and black on the other. He packaged them in cigar boxes that he got for free and he added a checkerboard and with the rules of the game of reversi, he gave out these Christmas gifts. You probably know it as Othello today. But I grew up with Reversi, knowing that it could look like all was lost. And with the placement of just one disc, the game could reverse in your favor, flipping things over. Isaiah shares God's promise of Reversi, of reversal. The writer of O Holy Night calls it the thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And some of you experienced that thrill of hope last Saturday during the Iron Bowl. Alabama was down to its last play, fourth and 31. The Alabama quarterback tossed the ball to the corner of the end zone and Isaiah, Isaiah Bond from Buford, Georgia, caught the pass there in the end zone, winning the game. Some people then quoted Isaiah, Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. The right-handed quarterback, Jalen Milrow, said afterward, it's about never giving up. It's all about trust. That was the biggest thing throughout the game. And with that play, all about trust. And Milrose middle name, he has two, but one of them is Isaiah. For those of you who are Auburn fans, there's some interesting research coming out of the University of Oklahoma about finding hope after trauma. Professor Chan Hellman found unlikely hope during a 10-minute conversation some years ago with a young man who was newly diagnosed with HIV. He said that diagnosis had led the young man's parents to kick him out of the house. The University of Oklahoma quantitative psychologist met this 19-year-old while conducting a housing assessment for the nonprofit Tulsa Cares. The teenager was happy, engaging with others, and quite thoughtful, even though he was living under a bridge. Despite the fact that trauma can pull the hope right out of you. It changed Hellman's way of thinking about hope after trauma. He went from asking, what's wrong with you? He'd been trained to ask that, to asking what is right with you? Hope asks, what is right with you? Not what's wrong with you. Two of the men in our church told me this week that they love the United Methodist Church because we concentrate more on thou shall than on the thou shalt nots the thou shalt nots they grew up with. After his conversation with this young man, Hellman wanted to discover if hope could be taught. The Hebrew people had every reason not to hope, 
but they trusted in God and lived with expectant hope. They trusted in the God who could reverse things and send them back home for the holidays, no matter how far apart they had roamed. The Oklahoma research says that after trauma, people, especially children, struggled to find hope. That was the case for the Hebrew people in exile in Babylon. Isaiah speaks into that difficult place, declaring the year of God's grace, the year of the Lord's favor. And luckily for us, today is the first day of the new year, the beginning of Advent. Advent is about living in God's time, not our time, not being conformed to the calendars of this world. So happy new year. It's time to start anew. Hellman teaches that hope has three main components. The first is goal setting, a vision for what can be, seeing a destination, and then a pathway, a pathway to get to the new destination. And the third is mental energy, the strength to be able to get there. Hellman asked us to remember learning to drive a stick shift. Anybody remember that? Not as much of a thing today as it was when I was growing up. He says, imagine just getting started learning to use the clutch and you stop at a stop sign on a steep hill and you look in your rear view mirror and right behind you is a brand new BMW. Rather than concentrating on moving forward, you begin thinking, don't hit the BMW, don't hit the BMW. He calls that an avoidance goal, trying to avoid the pain that is behind us. And he suggests setting achievement goals, looking forward to what can be, concentrating on thou shall rather than on thou shalt not. The prophet Isaiah draws our attention to what can be, a new destination that is God's promise. Isaiah 40 calls us to prepare the way of the Lord to make his path straight. The prophetic imagination calls us to imagine ways to get to where we are called to go and then finally to maintain the mental energy we need to get there. Now, folks, we all lose mental energy as the day goes on and as the week wears on and we need to be refilled. I know that if I did not have an accountability partner who I know is waiting for me at the gym Monday, Wednesday and Friday mornings that I would have stayed under the warm covers this week. For we cannot maintain willpower on our own, but through prayer, connection with God, accountability with others and worship together, we can be refilled so that we have the strength to follow the path toward the goal, which together brings hope. Back in 1981, do you know how many football games were televised every Saturday? One. You could only see one game on a Saturday. Then two universities saw a new destination, Oklahoma and our own University of Georgia. They brought an antitrust action against the NCAA, seeking an injunction to prevent the NCAA from enforcing its television plan, which was designed to limit the total television broadcasts of college football games, as well as the number of appearances of the individual schools. After a ruling in their favor, in the favor of the schools, pretty soon Ted Turner was broadcasting college football games. Now, some of you may think of Ted Turner in a certain way, like this memory shared with me by one of our members, Bob Webb. Bob and Ted were eating at a deli not far from CNN offices on Lexington Avenue in New York when several women noticed that Ted was there, which is exactly what Ted wanted. The women approached the table and asked, are you Ted Turner? And Ted just grinned and replied boldly, well, somebody has to be. That was part of his mental energy that allowed him to remain hopeful or at least full of chutzpah. Here's a man who inherited a family business 
after his father's death by suicide, who then began dreaming about what could be. Ted Turner did not let trauma define him or confine him. A superstation with programming starting five minutes after the hour. Who thought that was a good idea? A 24-hour news station? Everyone said that would never work. And then buying the MGM film library that almost bankrupted him. But then it brought us TNT and Turner Classic Movies and so much more. Ted was a person of vision, forever hopeful. He saw where he wanted to go. He was relentless and asked others to help him find a way to get there. And with a deep sense that his instincts were right, he maintained the mental energy to stick to his ideas. Ted was once asked if he felt lucky and he answered, yes, I do feel lucky. I'm lucky I wasn't born a mosquito. And I have been lucky, but you have to work at it. You have to work at your life, you know. Speaking of mosquitoes, did you know that Ted Turner worked with the United Methodist Church on our efforts to fight malaria? To be hopeful can be taught. Isaiah, on God's behalf, was trying to teach the people in exile to hope again in the midst of trauma, not trusting in their abilities, but in God's abilities to flip things right side up again, to see a new destination for their lives, to get back home again. This week, we celebrate the life of Rosalind Carter as she was ushered to her heavenly home. Aaron Glantz, a two-time Peabody award-winning journalist, had won an award with Rosalind Carter's name. Rosalind Carter's mental health advocacy changed journalism, he said, and it changed journalists like him by asking one question. He'd already accomplished so much when he met her back in 2008. He'd written a book and had another under contract, but he was broken inside after three years of reporting in Iraq and after an equal amount of time chronicling the challenges that our veterans faced back home in the U.S., Glantz said, I wrote without purpose, drifting from story to story. I was full of rage. And then Miss Carter asked him, how does your journalism really make an impact? It was such an obvious question, but it changed Glantz's life. Her challenge laid out softly in her gentle southern drawl gave Glantz a way to channel his trauma. He could deploy it and his entire journalism toolbox to make people's lives better he said that Rosalind Carter's legacy on mental health boils down to one word, hope. Her faith in God allowed her to be so hopeful that she saw where we could go. She saw a better way. She saw a path to get there. And through her deep faith, she maintained the mental energy to get there, pushing others to make an impact. Since that haunting question hit glance, he said, I've done the work and the VA now tracks veteran suicides in an effort to prevent them. 500,000 fewer veterans are waiting for disability benefits and 100,000 fewer veterans are on government prescribed opioids. All this can be tracked back to Mrs. Carter and her vision. She saw a new destination, created a pathway to get there and through funding and encouragement gave this journalist and others the stamina to get there. Glantz followed her lead that journalism should have a greater purpose to fight stigma and to make change, to give hope, hope-filled and hope-driven writing. Rosalind Carter watched his work closely, sent him congratulations when his reports won awards, and she took him seriously, which made him take his work even more seriously. 
resulting in a beautiful reversal. So as you begin this new year, no matter the trauma of this past year, set some godly goals for the new year. Make God's path straight, even in the wilderness and invest in prayer, accountability and worship so that you have the mental energy to stick with it. I heard someone say last week that hope is the confidence in the promises of God. Jerry Ray said it this way in his testimony on Tuesday morning, sharing how his children and his grandchildren led him back to church after 27 years of sliding away. He said, you just can't beat the promises of God. Our God will reverse the worst of circumstances. My first few months here at Dunworthy were anything but easy. We met each week to discuss just how to deal with COVID that particular week, to see just how to do ministry. Even the wing and a prayer ornament exchange had to be held outside that year. And although I didn't leave with the ornament I wanted, I left with a renewed sense of hope that I could lead the people here, that God was up to something. And even through the trauma and pain, God was doing something new. I saw a glimpse of what could be in the good-natured fun of an ornament exchange, even if I didn't get the one I wanted. But a week or so later, a package showed up. It was from Lou and Ann West, two members of Wing and a Prayer. You might know Ann as the one who puts together our Advent devotionals each year. And when I opened it, there was the ornament that I needed the most. A sign, if you will. Everything will be okay. And in fact, it has been more than okay. And it will be more than okay. I trust in that hope, the gift of hope, even on the days that I only get a glimpse. For friends, there's no place like hope for the holidays. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.